Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu from the podcast team at Qalam. We wanted to wish you a very blessed Ramadan. This month you can expect daily uploads that will include reflections, khatiras and khutbas all from our new campus Alhamdulillah. If you benefit from this content, please give generously at supportqalam.com. 100% of your donations goes towards the means of providing accessible Islamic knowledge to people around the world. Jazakumullah khairan for listening. Bismillah walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Alhamdulillah, we want to welcome everyone back for our nightly uh, program here during the last 10 nights of the month of Ramadan. Alhamdulillah, um, we've been having these gatherings every single night here, uh, you know, in the masjid where we have uh, reflections and uh, discussions pertaining to the theme of forgiveness. The forgiveness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We specifically look at stories of forgiveness, uh, hence, you know, the title of the series, Forgiven, trying to really appreciate and reflect upon the stories and the examples of those who were forgiven by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Primarily, we've been so far looking at stories from the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. I just lost my echo. So, the room just shrunk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, I don't sound as impressive anymore. More, 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 right? So, but, uh, so, um, no, so alhamdulillah, we've been re- having these sessions every night. And then after we conclude these sessions around one o'clock, uh, we then have qiyam prayers, alhamdulillah. Uh, so, I want to welcome you back for that. And uh, inshallah, as I've mentioned previously, just so I don't forget to mention it again, um, tomorrow in Salatul Taraweeh, inshallah, starting at 9.30 with Salatul Isha, we are going to be having the completion of the recitation of the entire Qur'an in Salatul Taraweeh. Um, so there will be a very special program for that, so we ask you to come join us for that, inshallah. Uh, and we'll have, you know, um, we're going to have a sp- very special dua for the completion of the Qur'an, inshallah, tomorrow night. So uh, we request you to join us for that, inshallah. And then, of course, as usual, we'll be back here for the Qiyam program, bi'nillahi ta'ala. So today, we're going to talk about a particular companion of the Prophet ﷺ to create some really quick background on who this person is. And then I'm going to ask Ustad to um, kind of you know, go through the actual story that we're reflecting upon today. But just to quickly set up who the person is. So... Medina, right? The city of the Prophet ﷺ. It's important to understand what it was historically. Because what it was before the Prophet ﷺ and what it became after the Prophet ﷺ are two totally different things. And I'm not talking about the obvious thing in terms of like faith. Like before they weren't Muslim, then they were Muslim, obviously. But I mean just in terms of what the status of that city, that town was before Islam, before the Prophet ﷺ, and what it became after the Prophet ﷺ. Is very important. So the Prophet is from Mecca. Mecca was always a big city. Right? Uh, why didn't it come down upon a respectable man of the two big cities? The two big cities of Arabia, right now in our mind, are Mecca and Medina. At that time, it was Mecca and Taif. Medina was called Yathrib before Islam. We don't call that anymore. Right? Because the Prophet didn't like that name. Because Yathrib literally meant like smelly water. It was a kind of a derogatory name, derisive name. So the Prophet the name changed to Medina. Medina to Nabi. 
the Prophet's city, sallallahu alayhi wa So Medina was a small farm town before Islam. So it had a Bedouin vibe, it had a country vibe, it had a rural vibe. Farm, it was a farm town. Right, so what does that mean? That means that when the Prophet came there, Medina started to get big now and become like a full-fledged city. But the areas all around it were all still rural. They were also farmlands. They were all still countryside. Right? It was basically Oklahoma. You understand? It's okay. This is Texas. Everybody understands that, right? Yeah. He said also Denton, Oklahoma. Right? <laughs> Denton's a city in Oklahoma. Right? So, but, uh, so only the, the natives are laughing, see? But, uh, so, but anyways, so Medina was still, because it, it, it was country, it was a countryside itself, once it kind of became a city, it was, it was the odd one out. So it was completely surrounded by countryside. So the areas all around Medina were these small little like farming towns and villages and Bedouin tribes. And they had a very tribal system. Abu Lubaba was from one of those Bedouin tribes outside of Medina. And he was a leader of his tribe. Abu Lubaba was a leader of his tribe. Now, his tribe... Abu Lubaba and his tribe became Muslim early on. They became Muslim in the earlier days of Medina. So alhamdulillah, 100% Muslim. They accepted Islam. They were not one of those Bedouin tribes that became Muslim right before the Prophet passed away. And then when the Prophet passed away, then they flipped back. Right? And then they had the Hurubur Ridda, the wars of apostasy. Right? No, no, no. Abu Lubaba, solid, 100% Muslim. His tribe, solid, 100% early, early Medinan Muslims. Got it? So I just wanted you to understand who he is. Because that's going to be important for the context of what you're about to learn right now. Right? So you got to remember, Abu Lubaba is a respectable person. He's a leader of his people. He's a leader of his tribe. All right? He represents an entire tribe. Number two, uh, Abu Lubaba is country. Okay? You have to remember that. Because Ustad is going to tell you the story, and you're going to see, and when you're like, why is he doing that? Because he's country. Okay? <laughs> it's important to remember that. All right? So, inshallah, with that, a little bit of background set up, I'm going to ask Ustad to, inshallah, uh, tell us the story. Okay. So, Abu Lubaba, uh, who's a notable companion, you know, he fought in the Battle of Uhud, he was somebody that was very. Uh, you know, loyal to the Prophet Sallallahu And I think that's, that's something that we have to highlight just from the get-go, that his loyalty was one that was never, uh, you know, questioned. It was never weak. But, of course, the story about being forgiven, there has to be some moment, right? And so um, there is a time in which some of the tribes in Medina that were not Muslim, they happened to be uh, of the Jewish faith, but they were just, nevertheless, they were not Muslim tribes. They had... Uh, partook in some sabotage and some um, treason against the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu So these, you know, range from different things like, uh, you know, harassing the Muslim community, kind of overstepping the bounds of the constitution of Medina that was laid down to have all parties live respectably amongst each other, to even at some point planning and attempting to assassinate the Prophet Sallallahu by doing things like dropping, you know, like a, a large boulder upon him as he sat down uh, in one of their gatherings, etc. So there was a lot of 
uh, as we say, bad faith amongst some of these tribes and the Muslims in Medina. So when it came to discuss uh, some of the retribution or the punishment upon one of these tribes, uh, Banu Quraida, there was a discussion between the tribal leaders about who should represent and who should be the one that is the arbitrator or the representative from the Muslims to discuss you know, what kinds of uh, you know, consequences should be given for their actions. So there was a lot of discussion about who they thought it should be, and they ended up basically agreeing upon Abu Lubaba. They agreed. Why? Well, Abu Lubaba, he had a residence near their district. He lived close to their area, if not in their area, and so he was someone that was recognizable. He was someone that they saw as you know a, 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 a familiar face. And so Abu Lubaba, being someone who was from their neighborhood and being someone who obviously had all of his belongings, his home, you know, his property, everything was there. When he met with these people, they instantly, uh, you know, jumped at him and, and just started laying, laying it on thick, as they say, with the empathy and the seeking, you know, oh, you know, are you really going to do this to us? How are you going to judge against us? You know, be merciful with us. You're our neighbor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they started to like bring out their children and they started to show all this, you know. And again, it's, it's, it's obviously a very, very sympathetic act. But when you put that in the context of what the attempt was to kill the Messenger of Allah, you know, to harass the Muslim community, etc. Then it just, again, it seemed like a very performative type of action. It didn't seem like it was sincere. Nevertheless, Abu Lubaba was a human being and he had a human heart. And sometimes when a person is exposed to all these languages of sympathy, uh, even if the people doing it are operating in bad faith, everyone's heart is you know, only strong as it can be. And so he took on some of their requests for sympathy. And when they started talking about what the plan was going to be with the Muslims, Abu Lubaba, in his discussion with the leaders of Banu Quraida, he did something uh, that he regretted immensely. And he didn't even say anything. He just did something. He, when he was trying to describe to them what the inevitability was going to be based on their actions, he took his hand and he went across his neck like this. He just took his hand and went like that. Okay, now what does that mean? Yeah. All right, okay, all right. Just for the FBI that bugged this room, definitely. Uh, this is a story. This is not a command. Okay, so he took his hand and he went like this. Uh, when they asked him, you know, like, should we, should we try to, uh, you know, how should we engage? He said, look, whatever you do, just know that, you know, this might happen. He kind of gave them that look. Then, instant, sorry. And, and because Ustad mentioned something very powerful, what I was alluding to, Abu Lubaba is a hundred percent Muslim. Yeah. He's not one of those Bedouin kind of chiefs that was trying to kind of ride the fence. Let's see how this plays out. Talk to Muhammad, yeah, we're cool. You talk to the Quraysh, yeah, we're good, we're good. And like trying to play both sides. That's not Abu Lubaba. Mm. Abu Lubaba is a hundred percent Ahsana Islamu. He's a Muslim, Sahabi, radiallahu anhu. But what you're hearing about now. One might think like, that doesn't sound like somebody who 
so who, who, that doesn't sound like some something someone loyal would do. So what exactly happened there? And the story, the narration mentions that they asked the Prophet ﷺ, can we talk to Abu Lubaba? Because Abu Lubaba is a chief of a tribe who has an agreement and an understanding with the Muslims. So as we are figuring out what's going to happen with us, can we confer with Abu Lubaba? What has his experience been like with y'all? And so he says, sure, go ahead, talk to Abu Lubaba. So when he goes to talk to them, the narration actually mentions that the, when he goes to talk to them, the narration actually mentions that the Banu Quraidha, who were guilty of committing treason and trying to kill and assassinate the Muslims, right? And, and trying to burn Medina to the ground, that those people, right, they saw, okay, Abu Lubaba's here now. So, all the men of Banu Quraidha went up to him and started like, you know, kind of just shaking his hand and grabbing a hold of him and kind of, you know, tapping him on the shoulder, you know, patting him on the back, being like, buddy, it's good to see you, man. You know? And they got all the women and children lined up. And they told him, start crying and, you know, be really dramatic as we walk Abu Lubaba through here. So he sees y'all and, you know, he's affected by it. Um... And so they, they put on this entire show and the narration says, فَرَقَّلَهُ mm. Right? And Abu Lubaba felt sorry for them. Heart, yeah. So I want everyone to understand Abu Lubaba kind of like making that gesture being like, listen, just as long as you know what you're walking into, meaning y'all committed the ultimate crime. You committed treason. You tried to actually massacre the women and children of all the Muslims while they were defending Medina on the trench. Right? Like, there will be, you do have to answer for this. You cannot think you're going to get off with the slap on the wrist, right? Like, he's just trying to tell them that. But somebody might think, like, why would a loyal Muslim to the Prophet ﷺ kind of like tell, tell the enemy, like, hey, FYI, you know? Why? Understand that even that's coming from a good place. Understand that even that's coming from a good place. That's not Abu Lubaba selling out the Prophet ﷺ, that's Abu Lubaba having a heart. That's Abu Lubaba not, you know, being naive, being, being nice, being trusting. Where he sees, you know, these people crying and, you know, screaming and crying and all of this. And he kind of sees it and he feels bad. He feels bad because he's a good person. Right? So I just wanted to kind of fill in that context. Yeah. And then so immediately the narration says that he realizes that he feels like he just completely and totally uh, um, like to, to deceive, yes. So he deceived, betrayed, right? And this is actually one of the words that the Prophet used for the hypocrites, that when they are trusted, they never hold up their trust. So he felt like, what have I done? Instantly, right? And again, the emotional complexity of the situation is one where, again, sitting here 1,400 years later, it's very easy for us to say stuff like, oh yeah, you know, you shouldn't have done that. But in reality, like, yeah, exactly, as you're sitting here in like this room that's like 54 degrees right now for some reason, it's freezing, uh, you know, and you've, you've been well fed and all that. It's very easy, like again, revisionist history, kind of looking back and oh, it should have been done this way. But remember, like, this is a person who's being surrounded by people 
and he sees the tears flowing and this and they put on a good show right the performance was strong right it's not that hard to not go through uh, the punishment you just have to try not to kill the leader of the city like that's pretty much it but they did that and then they tried to sort of manipulate this this individual who they knew would have sensitivities because why because he again was someone who was from their area he saw them they knew each other so he went back and he instantly you know his his entire face changed his entire countenance changed he went back and he said that you know i'm going to go and i got back to the message of the prophet sallallahu and he said that i am going to tie myself up he took a rope and he actually tied himself up to the pillar in the message of the prophet sallallahu and he swore okay that he would not let a single person untie him except the prophet sallallahu with his hands that i'm not going to do i'm not going to run away from accountability i'm not going to let a single person no matter how hard this gets untie me i want the prophet sallallahu to come and untie me with his hands i'm never going back to that place like i'm never ever going to go back to that place i never want to see those people ever again because of what this horrific mistake that i did when i went there now this is a very interesting sort of moment uh, it says here, فَلَمَّا بَلَغَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ خَبْرُهُ That when the Prophet ﷺ heard this news uh, about Abu Lubaba, what happened? When the whole situation got back to him. That he went there, he said this, he came back, it, he gestured this, he's regretting it, he tied himself to the pillar. The Prophet ﷺ said something very interesting. He says, أَمَّا أَنَّهُ لَوْ جَاءَنِي لَأَسْتَغْفِرْتُ لَهُ If he just came to me, I would have sought forgiveness on his behalf. Okay? But he says now that he's done what he's done, now that he's done what he's done, he said, now we have to wait until the repentance has been granted from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because he took that, that, that oath. He took the promise that I'm not going to do it until Allah uh, accepts my repentance and that the Prophet comes and unties me with his own hands. Um, so... The, the, the story goes that this went on for about six days, that he was tied to the pillar. He's, I mean, I want you to imagine this pillar here, guys. You're staying here tied to the pillar. And again, it's, it seems, again, like a very simple thing, but every day people are coming in. They're looking at you. It's not just the, the physical aspect of being tied to a pillar, but it's also the, like the humiliation, right? Like you have to deal with that sort of people looking and being like, still here, man, right? And there's kind of a little funny story, too. He did this before as well. He did this after, sorry. He did this after as well, during Tabuk. He, when he didn't go, right, and he didn't join the army, as a form of self-punishment, he tied himself to the pillar again. And so this is kind of like a thing that he does. Like if you see Abu Lubaba with a rope walking to the masjid, you're like, don't do it, man. <laughs> Just go talk to the prophet. <laughs> like, I promise you it'll be okay. He just always got his rope with him, right? But again, I mean, Denton, right? Like, you know, simple people, simple solutions, right? So, so, uh, so anyways, the, 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 the story continues that he was there for an extended amount of time until one day, uh, Um Salama, the, the scene kind of shifts. Um Salama sees the Prophet Sallallahu smiling. And she asks him, she goes like, what, what's, what, what are you smiling about? And he said that, you know, give the good news to uh, Abu Lubaba that Allah Ta'ala has accepted his repentance and he'll be forgiven. So people, you know, Um Salama asked, like, can I, can I go and be the one to deliver the news? And so obviously the news was delivered to Abu Lubaba. Remember the house of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and the masjid are? 
like connected. So it's not like, you know, we have to travel for a few hours and get there. It's right there. So they go and they give him the news. And Abu Lubaba, again, he's like a very, you know, strong-willed person. He hears this. He becomes happy. But what's his promise? I'm not going to leave this position until the Prophet ﷺ himself comes and unties me from this pillar, from this uh, situation. And so the Prophet ﷺ, he comes and he unties Abu Lubaba uh, from the situation, or from the, from the pillar, and he fixes him from that situation, and he says to him that, uh, you know, this is the forgiveness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon you, and he gives him that good news and that glad tidings, and this is just the, 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 the recollection of the story of Abu Lubaba. Uh, as we know it. Again, it has a little bit of a lightheartedness, a little bit of a, a humorous tone to it, but there are a couple things that we wanted to point out in particular. I see Sheikh's already highlighting, mashallah, some things. One of the things that I thought was uncomfortably necessary was this idea that when you make a mistake, especially a mistake where you're pretty much the only person that can recognize the gravity of it, on your own self, there's no idea in Islam of like, uh, what's the word, self-flagellation, like, like physically harming yourself, hurting yourself as a means of pen, uh, you know, repentance. But, but some of the scholars of Tazkiyah, they would say and recommend, for example, that um, in order to seek the repentance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you have to show the sincerity. So some would recommend, for example, sadaqah. Right? That's a very common one. They'll say, like, if you want to seek Allah's forgiveness, you want to change your way, go give some sadaqah. Why? Because it, it pinches. Like, giving money is like a pinch. Yeah, exactly. And because doing good deeds, in al-hasanat, yudhibna sayat. That doing good deeds is going to hold you back from the bad deeds, right, that you've done. The Prophet Wasallam said what? That when you do a bad deed, when you do make a mistake, then immediately do a good deed. Why? Temhuha. It will erase it. So there is an idea, there is a notion that when you do something that is wrong, you have to think about how to reckon, uh, uh, how to rectify, how to make islah of your own self. Now, Abu Lubaba's prescription of the pillar and the rope may not be the prescription that you and I need, right? Like, I don't want to see everyone here tomorrow with ropes. There's only a few pillars in the building anyways, right? But there is a practical way of implementing this. Meaning, if I continue to slip with regards to my relationship with Allah and all the luxuries and all the pleasant you know, things and all of the delicious foods and the awesome coffee and the boba and this and that, all of that doesn't change. I am signaling to my mind and to my heart that what I've done is not that big of a deal, right? Like how do we try to communicate to children that their bad behavior needs to change? What do we do? We, we do something, right? There's something. If a child hits somebody, right, or yells or screams or whatever, there's some sort of Adaptive measure, okay, you know, I understand you're frustrated, but we can't yell, we can't hit, and because of that, you know, we're not going to go to the trampoline park, or we're not going to, you can't play your switch, you can't do that. There's an adaptive shift, right? You have to. But when we turn into adults and we're the ones in charge of those decisions, we never apply the same logic to ourselves. Imagine, imagine, and my mother would do this, by the way, to us, like she would, 
You know, if we didn't pray Fedger in the masjid, not Fedger, Fedger in the masjid, she would do crazy things to us. <laughs> she would literally call our jobs, and we were hourly employees, okay, so every shift mattered. She would call our jobs and call us out sick for the day. So if, like, Fedger was at 6, my shift started at, like, 10, I'd wake up, I'd pray Fedger, I'd go back to sleep, I'd wake up again for work, and she'd say, why are you waking up? You know, like, the evil person with the chair that spins and they have a cat? Very, like, similar vibes. Why are you waking up? I have to go to work. Oh, no, you don't. What do you mean? Mama, what did you do? Don't go to work today. You don't deserve it. Like, you can't go pray at the masjid? You don't deserve this risk. It's not yours. I already called you in sick. You must be sick. That's the only concession why you'd stay and pray at home, right? Right? Just the, the sarcasm was so fresh. <laughs> but I wonder, subhanAllah, with us, if we make mistakes, which we do, how much more sincere the repentance would be and how much more powerful the motivation to change would be if we didn't have that ice latte that day. If we didn't go out for sushi that night. If our friends were playing basketball and we decided, you know what, I don't deserve it. Like, what, did I fulfill my relationship with Allah today? If I didn't, then, you know what, maybe I do need to take a week off and think about my priorities, right? That's a sign of an emotionally mature person. The ability to say, you know what, I can't keep rewarding myself as I'm slipping down this path. And again, it's not to say that we need to get as intense as Abu Lubaba. What he did was culturally appropriate for his time. It was something that was not super abnormal. Otherwise, you think the Prophet would have let it happen for six days? It was something that was, it was there. It was you know, acceptable culturally. But you know and I know that if we don't do anything to regulate our behavior and we just keep living our good life as it is, as we slip on the path away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we both know that nothing's going to change. So one of the lessons I take from this story of Abu Lubaba is that think about the luxuries Allah has given you and if you can't honor your relationship with him, maybe it's time to press the pause button on those luxuries for a bit. Maybe it's time just to say, you know what, I used to have a teacher, by the way, back earlier in uh, before you know, I started studying with Shaykh al-Nasr, early days, and he used to say, when I don't wake up for Fajr, I sleep on the floor. Because he's like, if, if my bed is too comfortable for me to get up, then there's a problem. So I got to sleep on the floor because you know what? I'm definitely going to wake up for Fajr if I'm sleeping on the floor because the reward for praying is that I get to sleep in my bed after that. So again, it's the same concept. If I find my relation with Allah is struggling, I have to do something to change that. So that's one of the reflections. Sheikh, do you have something? It's also fascinating, you know, all the jokes aside, you know, and again, not making fun because this is a companion of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam radiallahu anhu, may Allah be pleased with him. But at the same time, enjoying the very, just appreciating and enjoying kind of the very human element of it all, right? Um, and how people are people. And even the Prophet used to find it amusing, right? The behavior of people and the reactions of people. With all that, you know, aside, it's fascinating because he is a Muslim and he is a companion of the Prophet that his instinct 
when he has made a mistake and he feels like he messed up, like he didn't handle something properly, you know, yes, the Prophet ﷺ said, come talk to me, Habibi. Right? We, we got that part of it. But still his instinct was that he came straight to the masjid, to the house of Allah. And that when he's trying to pay his penance, when he feels like he's beyond reproach right now, and he just needs to kind of be put in, you know, adult time out. And he needs to just kind of like be kind of uh, humbled by the gazes of the people, right? By people walking into the masjid and looking at him and eyeballing him and, you know, just kind of disapproving of him. Like he needs to be humbled. All that's fine. But appreciate the fact that he came to the house of Allah. He never went anywhere besides Allah. Right? And that's something really, really powerful. One of the biggest blessings that we can walk away with from the month of Ramadan is learning to be a little bit more comfortable in the masjid, in the place of worship. Right? And this goes back to the whole thing of, you know, Neem Hakim Khatrajan. Right? That's, you know, if you go to somebody who's not really a properly trained physician, you are risking your life. Right? With a medical issue, if you go to somebody who's not a properly trained professional, licensed and all that, and trained and experienced, you're risking your life. But also a little bit of knowledge where you don't have like the full scope and the understanding and the depth and the, you know, the wisdom you can actually make critical errors in the practice of your religion, right? So informationally, is it true that you have to pray five times a day, but you don't have to pray in the masjid? Informationally, that is true, right? Informationally speaking, in terms of just the facts, factually speaking, is it true that even coming for Jummah is not mandatory, Upon the sisters, factually, yes, technically, yes, that is correct. Alright, so technically speaking, what you're saying is that even for an adult male Muslim, he only has to come to the masjid, has to come to the masjid once a week for Jummah. Technically speaking, yes, you'd be correct. But all of this technicality would result in a lack of spirituality. Do you understand that? Shaitan was a logician. He was a tactician. He had all the facts. He, had knew, he knew all the technicalities. He had all the information. And he ended up doomed. Ar-Rajim. Al-Mal'oon. Discarded from the mercy of God. Cursed for all of eternity. And so that's where we have to kind of remember that the masjid, the place of worship, is a place of the remembrance of Allah. It is the house of Allah. It is al-masjidu baytu kulli taqiyin. It is the place where every God-conscious person belongs. Where every God-conscious... And what that kind of means, it's, that's a style in the Arabic language where it's called, اِعْتِبَارُ مَا يَكُونَ 
اعتبار ما يكون it's a type of majaz المجاز المرسل اعتبار ما يكون what does that mean? what that means is you refer to someone in terms of what they will be or can be so saying that every person in the masjid is a God conscious person which we know factually that's not true but what it's saying is the more time you spend with Allah in the house of Allah the more God conscious you shall become that leads to God consciousness right and you know so that's just something that we all need to and, and there's a lot more conversation around that right in terms of what challenges can be present etc sometimes in the community and in the masjid and those are duly noted and those are those are very much understood and appreciated but at the same time though there are places and opportunities where we can go to the masjid and connect with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and be comfortable in the house of Allah and that's something that we need to learn in the month of Ramadan because you see this sahabi Abu Lubaba that's where he went there's a in the tafsir uh, about some of the ayat that they've tied back to this story there's a beautiful verse that I think I want to conclude with because again it's 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 just one of those verses in the Quran that's so um, relatable. It's so absolutely relatable. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, That there are some people, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the previous verse describes the hypocrites, those people who have zero goodwill within their hearts, they want nothing more than to make life difficult for the Prophet. And uh, he's, Allah Ta'ala says, even though they're not known to you, they're known to us. So Allah Ta'ala is assuring the Prophet Sallallahu that even though these troublemakers, you might not be able to distinguish in a crowd who's who, don't worry, we know who they are. And then the Mufassirin, they say that this next verse is talking about Abu Lubaba. Because how many times have you had the intention to do something good and you messed up? Yes or no? Anybody? I mean, there's a reason why the Prophet ﷺ taught us that we're rewarded for good intentions. Because it's very common that you have a good intention and then you either don't fulfill it, okay, for whatever reason, or you, are, you have a good intention and somehow it gets spoiled, or you have a bad intention and then somehow you're able to hold yourself back. There's all these different formulas, right? Basically, like, we're not 100% good or bad. Everybody here is a mixture, of their desires and their desire to do good and desire to do bad. So Allah Ta'ala here is addressing this and he says that there are some from amongst the people, not the hypocrites, but there are some others, that they have confessed, they've made their wrongdoings known. Okay, Abu Lubaba was one of these people. He did something incorrect and he made his wrongdoing known. What did Allah Ta'ala describe it? They have mixed their good and their bad deeds. They've mixed them. It, it's, 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 a, it's a confusing mixture. Because inside of them, they want to do good. Their heart pushes them to do good. But then somehow, one way or another, the stumbling happens. The slipping happens. Right? So what happens when, when you and I have an intention to do something good and then we aren't able to do it? Or we show up for somewhere for tarawih prayer and we're sidetracked by the food table outside. And before you know it, you know, Hafid Muhammad Ishaq, who mashallah is on, on pace, 
By the time you had, you know, three leftover cheesecakes from somebody, you missed eight rakat. And you're like, my intention to come here tonight was to pray. And then the cheesecake, you know? It, all jokes aside, that stuff happens. It happens a lot. You have an intention to do something or to say something. How many of us have had the intention to, like, build good relationships and then an argument broke out? We said something we regretted, right? The good and the bad, they mix. And you should never feel like because you can't get 100% perfection in your deeds that you're a failure. Why? Because Allah Ta'ala tells us, These people, when they have that C- minus performance, right? The spiritual C- minus or the D+, plus, and they feel like, you know what? I'm never going to get it. I'm never going to get it. I came here to pray and I couldn't even make Isha on time. Literally, a sister was telling me today, I come here every day to pray, and because of my kids, I can't even pray. I sit here, and all I do is tell my kids, be quiet, so that the aunties don't tell them to be quiet, right? And then I get frustrated, and we just go home, and I don't pray, they don't pray. It's just, it's a mess. And I told her, Allah rewards you for your intention, right? Why? Allah Ta'ala will turn towards you. He witnesses you. He sees you. He sees your effort, even if it's a D plus or a C minus. In Allah Rahim. Allah Ta'ala is the most forgiving, the most merciful. So with the story of Abu Lubaba, the lesson stands that your imperfection is part of your humanity. Your imperfection is part of what makes you a human being. And every single person, whether it is the way you talk, the way you walk, the way you dress, what you think, how you act, whatever, is a work in progress. You don't need to bring a rope with you to the masjid. But thinking about your spiritual growth as a project, taking it seriously, setting boundaries for yourself, telling yourself that if I don't wake up for my prayers, if I don't give my zakat, if I don't do what I'm supposed to do, that I'm going to actually make sure that I feel the weight of that. I'm not just going to wake up and say, oh, missed another one, right? <laughs> Draw another like, line on the wall. No. I don't wake up for Fajr. I'm not enjoying the morning like I thought I was. Maybe brunch is canceled. <gasps> right? Your friend's like, why are you missing brunch? You're like, can't tell you. <laughs> right? Just bring my rope to the masjid. I'll meet you there. <laughs> Seriously. Maybe brunch is canceled. Maybe you go and all you have is water. Oh, that's extreme. No, you know what's extreme? Not praying Fajr. Like not thanking Allah for the avocado toast. That's extreme. I'm not going to go play basketball. Why? Because I, 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 wasn't on, I didn't hit my five prayers today. That's extreme. No. What if you go and ma'asalama to your ACL? Right? Because why? The person who prays in congregation, fi They're in the protection of Allah. So we have to think like this. Again, I'm not trying to create hyperparanoia. But we do have to think about, you know what? I can't keep rewarding myself when I keep failing. Otherwise, my mind and my heart will think that all of the requirements are just a joke. They're just suggestions. Right? So Abu Lubaba, he teaches us that. What does it mean to have spiritual strength? To say, you know what? If you mess up, you got to make sure this never happens again. And that's the story of Abu Lubaba. We ask Allah Ta'ala to forgive us. We ask Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala to highlight the good and to hide the bad. We ask Allah Ta'ala to allow us to be vulnerable enough to come back to him. 
and that when we do have moments of weakness, we ask Allah for the strength to change those moments of weakness into moments of strength. Amin, amin, ya rabbil alameen. Subhanakallahu bihamdik, nashadu an la ilaha illa ant, nastaghfiruka wa antubu ilayk. InshaAllah, we'll see everybody tomorrow night for the khatim uh, of the Quran, inshaAllah, in the prayers. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to uh, have some nice reflections uh, at the conclusion of that as well. InshaAllah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.